Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Modern communication technology has changed dramatically the ways in which teachers and students communicate. My guest today has explored the dynamics of that communication in a book titled Dear Professor, A Chronicle of Absences, which is a 2016 copyright under the imprint of Puckton Books. Philip Notre Dame is a New York-based artist, writer, and professor teaching art history at NYU, the New School, and the City University of New York. He is also has extensive experience working as an educator in prominent museums such as the Guggenheim, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, all in New York City. He also holds a BFA in sculpture from the School of Visual Arts in New York City and a master's degree from NYU. Philip, welcome to Teaching Matters. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed uh, reading your book. It, it definitely struck a chord with me, who's received uh, many emails like that. So your book really publishes over 200 emails that you've received from students as they attempt to explain, uh, excuse, or maybe even apologize for missing a class. That's something that I think any teacher can relate to. What led you to want to memorialize those emails in a book like this? Well, very simple. I, I think that, you know, it's true that pretty much every college professor nowadays has to deal with the daily accumulation of student emails. And most of these emails, sadly, are, not, are all about not coming to class. So this is a fairly new phenomenon and I thought it should be addressed. And I started to collect these emails just to keep track of them. And then I realized that together they paint a quite incredible portrait of the modern student body. And here's an interesting paradox. Very often we discuss um, the challenges of higher education today in America, but the students themselves are rarely heard in that conversation. So this was another motivation. I wanted to present the real voices of my students because their emails are quite telling in regards to the problems and the issues that they are facing themselves. I'm thinking about commitment issues entitlement, uh, exhaustion, insecurity, uh, depression, just to name a few um, issues, serious issues. Yeah, you know, as I was reading the book and, and looking at, at, at many of the emails, there, there's a whole range of emotions that you sense from the students as you're reading those. And, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in, in more detail. I, I think before we get into some of the details of what some of the emails uh, represent, maybe you could describe sort of the scope of what is contained in your book. So I know that there's over 200 emails in there, but can you kind of describe the time frame and, and maybe also talk a little bit about the types of students that you teach? Correct. I, I'm teaching a broad variety of students. I have adult students who are middle-aged, I have senior citizens, I have undergrads. Uh, so I would say uh, that all of them are of different social backgrounds because I teach in three different universities. Uh, I have very different uh, student bodies. Uh, we're talking about a select uh, 200 emails, so out of uh, I would say an avalanche, an onslaught of, of emails. And one thing I'd like to just briefly mention is that I 
altered all the students' names and obscured any telling details to protect their identities. Um, but other than that, all of the emails are presented uh, verbatim. The interesting thing is that this new phenomenon of using email to excuse yourself from class has by now be, been embraced by virtually all of my students. So no matter what age or background. So it's very clearly not a generational problem, but a systemic problem. And some of these emails are very plain and pragmatic, very matter of fact, but most students bend over backwards to get my sympathy and understanding. Uh, there's a lot of oversharing uh, and many disclosures of very personal matters that I would prefer not to know about. And there also, there's also this sense of entitlement, as if I was a sort of a, a private tutor that they could reach out to at any moment uh, of the day or sometimes at night. Perhaps the most common excuse, besides sickness, uh, is a death in the family, and usually a grandmother. So at the beginning of each semester, I'm always tempted to offer my students my advanced condolences, because according to my st statistics, uh, their grandmothers are bound to pass away whenever they don't feel like coming to class. <laughs> how how uh, long of a time span do the emails in your book encompass? Um, it begins in 2010, and it just runs through 2016. And as I recall, interestingly, uh, th there are no page numbers in the book, but there are dates for each of the emails. Am I remembering that correctly? That's correct. Um, I, it's really a, the most basic chronology you can imagine. I have three mailboxes, since I teach in three different institutions, and I simply ordered all of these emails chronologically. So beginning in 2010 and ending in 2016. So Yeah, I thought it was, I mean, if any, if anything, it's, it's a very interesting read from the standpoint of it being a, a, a robust set of, of discursive stances from students as they explain um, why they were not in class or, or, or other things that they're trying to communicate to you. Let's, let's give the listeners um, a sense of some of the emails. I'm sure that as the recipient of these emails and the person who put them together into a book, you have some favorites or ones that you think are particularly revealing. Are, are there a few that you would uh, be willing to read uh, uh, so that the listeners can get a sense of what some of these emails sound like? Sure. I, I'll start with this one. Um, dear Professor, I just got out of the doctor's office. They wanted to scar my face and kill what's inside me. I ran out and did not pay. Here's another one among my favorites. Dear Professor, unfortunately, two weeks ago, while in the Sahara Desert, I fell off a camel and fractured four ribs. I'm in Paris recuperating, but as you probably know, only time and painkillers are the treatment. I will not be able to travel in time to make the first session on the 4th of June, but hope to be in New York in time for the second and subsequent sessions. This one is actually a little scary. Dear Professor, things on the street have been really crazy. I've been very distracted watching and listening to what is going on. 
It is somewhat out of my control. But I miss you and class. I will be in class on Monday. Needless to say, the student did not come on Monday. And then I got a whole slew of emails that became longer and longer from a student who I think is borderline, um, suffering from borderline paranoia. Um, and then I have a fourth one. Here we go. Dear Professor, I'm sorry that I had to leave early on Tuesday last week and was additionally unable to attend on Thursday. On Thursday, something came up and I was sadly unable to attend any of my classes. For Tuesday, I do not have such a good reason. If I'm honest, I left 20 minutes early because of a beautiful girl. And this comes in parentheses. The only and last time I would use this reason, and I apologize. I let instinctual hedonism take over for better or for worse. So in case it's not clear, the student left the class early for a sex date. And of course, he had to tell his professor. So these are just a few samples to give you a scope of the range of uh, excuses that are presented to me uh, in my mailboxes pretty much on a daily basis. <laughs> you know, when I, Philip, when I first started reading your book and, and, and going through especially the introduction where you set a stage for it, uh, as well as, as, as our email correspondence where you um, told me a little bit more about the book, mm -hmm. I, I went into that thinking, I wonder if he's very cynical about this. But as I, as, I read your, as I read your introduction, there was a statement that stuck out to me. You said, and I quote, and yet re-examining this overwhelming accumulation of epistolatory apologies, I cannot help but feeling increasingly empathetic towards those who wrote them. That statement really stuck out to me because as I hear you talk about it now, and as I as I read the introduction in your book, I almost get the sense that there's a dialectical tension that you're experiencing from the pragmatic side of being a teacher, where you really do have students that are missing class. And of course, the nature of the courses that you teach appears to me to be ones where if they're not in class experiencing the art, then it's going to be very difficult for them to maybe stay on top of things. In contrast, there's a human side of you that really understands that there's an emotional content to these emails. How do you reconcile that dialectical tension as a professor who's also a human being? Well, the fact of the matter is I do not, you know, reconcile these, these, these two opposites. Um, I'm upset that I have to deal with these emails because it takes a lot of time of, of my day. Uh, and I'm certainly not paid for it. Uh, and yet we are dealing here with very real human problems with people who are actually crying for help. I mean, the fact of the matter is that all these students seem to want my attention, which of course I'd be very happy to give it to them, but in class. Um, instead, they are not coming to class and they want my full attention outside it. And many of them are quite manipulative about it. I mean, sometimes when I read these emails, I really don't know if I should laugh or cry. Um, many of them are completely way over the top. Um, so there is really no reconciliation. Um, I love the tension because I think it 
is a reflection of the dilemma that many professors are facing. On the one hand, there is the irritation, there is that constant onslaught of a sense of obligation to have to read and answer to. And at the same time, there's the, I would say, the reading in between the lines. What is the subliminal message that's been sent out, if not this sort of SOS, this cry for help? And I think that's what I sort of make the balance tip on my side, where I said, there's something here that on the surface I may not have caught at the very beginning. But if I go deeper into the bulk of this, students are talking and they're saying something and they're using the subterfuge of email to slip that message under the rug. Let's look at it. How, how long have you been teaching? About 20 years. And so, so you've definitely experienced the transition, you know, to a more digitally oriented communication between teachers and students. Right. Do you, do you feel like the content of what students tell you has changed as a result of using email as opposed to what would have been more face-to-face communication in a previous era? I think it makes a real difference. The medium of email uh, makes it very easy for students to um, somehow bypass certain protocols of how you approach a teacher, how you communicate with a teacher. Um, so I feel that email gives you the ability to, on the one hand, tell a lie if you want to sort of pretend that you had uh, an emergency. Uh, and on the other hand, it also makes it easier to tell a truth that is often not pretty. I mean, I have students who are dealing with uh, depression, um, who are overwhelmed and um, are sort of signaling personal problems um, because they can do it more easily. Uh, via email than a face-to-face conversation. So it has, this is why it's somehow tricky. It's not about, this is not a book that says we should do away with this um, or here's a remedy for it. Uh, It just shows that it is an interesting medium for students to communicate. How they use it, why they use it is a case-by-case situation. Yeah, I I would have to say that in reading it, one of the things that I appreciated about your book is that it wasn't didactic in trying to place a normative judgment on the use of email, but it was a very interesting uh, snapshot over a multi-year period of the types of things that your students say. I thought that was a really fascinating... um, I, I could see very... Uh, definite uses for the book uh, as I'm working with new teachers uh, to help them Mm -hmm. understand, you know, the types of communication that they will engage in. So when I was going through the the various emails, um, of course, there's many fascinating ones, including the ones that you read. There were a few that um, stood out to me for various reasons. I just want to read a couple to you and have you react. um, You know, what's your reaction to the statement? And then I I might even slip in a few of my own comments. So on 
the email dated 32013 mm-hmm. it says i'm sorry i couldn't make it today i want to catch up what did i miss today mm-hmm. how do you how do you react to that type of an email well it all sounds very nice and polite innocent but if you really think about it we're dealing here with i think a serious entitlement issue just because you don't come to class doesn't mean that you're entitled to a private session with your teacher via email to just fill you in on what you missed. And this is a, the, the, the sort of paradox that is always presented again and again. Uh, it's, it, it wants, it means, well, at least this is how it comes across. I'm sorry I couldn't make it today. I want to catch up. There's a, a desire uh, of, of, of wanting to catch up. But how am I to respond to this if I receive about 20 emails of this sort over the course of a week. I mean, how, how, how can we begin to think about those students who are actually there, present, um, and responsible and committed, and then the student who just misses, but then claims to want to catch up? It's their responsibility, not mine. So I'm thinking about entitlement um, more and more as I, I begin to look at them critically. What is your take on this? Yeah, I you know the the phrase that it didn't use but almost did is, is a phrase that I actually hear a lot in and it's the statement or the the question, did I miss anything today? Um, which is another way to word um, what was said in this email and. I think it's interesting um, from the standpoint of students um, thinking about what it is that they experience while in class. And I think that the default assumption for many students is that it's a set of uh, notes that they take from something that the teacher lectured about. And what I try to stress to students um, as much as possible is what's far more important is the interaction that they have with their classmates and with the professor while they're in class that is not a bullet point PowerPoint slide, right? And, and and that's something that can't be recreated. And so when I'm talking with students about absences, it's usually far, I mean, you know, I can give them lecture notes and I can give them those things, but what they're missing really is the substance of what the uh, shared experience about those topics were in class. And that's the part that I think many times students do not tune into when they miss a class. They think that it's a set of notes rather than an experience. And frankly, experiences can't be recreated. I'm sure that's true in the courses that you teach that are, are, I'm assuming, very visually based and very dialogue-centered. Indeed. I mean, we talk about the liberal arts in my case. Uh, So I love teaching to sort of watch thoughts, ideas, emotions circulate through bodies. I mean, we're talking minds, bodies, hearts. That is something that cannot be recreated. And that for me is what makes, that's that's what makes the, 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 the heart of teaching beat. If you miss on that, you miss on a good 80% of the whole purpose of taking a class. Definitely. Uh, let me let me turn to one more example uh, before before we turn on to a couple other uh, topics. An email dated 12-10-2014. 
Uh, this is actually an extended email that I'm not going to uh, reread uh, word for word because of its length, but the student talks about a sister that had recently passed away, goes on to describe um, an, quote, irrational and, quote, clingy parents. Uh, she's worried about failing the course and wanted to know if she could still receive a, quote, okay grade or perhaps mm-hmm. a withdrawing grade from um, from the course. What, what, what are your responses or reactions to that to that email? This, to me, is bordering on emotional blackmail and asking for special treatment. I get these sort of emails all the time. Um, so this is tricky because who wants to get this emotional blackmail and and the excuses pile up and in the end it's all about getting an okay grade. Uh, what does that mean, okay? Mm-hmm. It's just for me showing a lack of respect not to me as a teacher, but simply to the whole idea of committing to the task of taking on the responsibility of being a student and partaking, participating, and to come at the end of the semester to somehow um, beg for an okay grade is meek. Yeah, I when I reacted to it, I I immediately looked at the number of times that the grade was emphasized in the email. And if you look at some of the education literature on goal orientation, it's pretty mm-hmm. clear that this student is focused entirely on the extrinsic grade rather than uh, perhaps the intrinsic nature of learning. So again, that pragmatic side of me says that this student is using uh, their apology as a vehicle through which they can achieve a better outcome for their grade or the extrinsic motivation, not really talking as much about the intrinsic need for what they can experience uh, in learning in a class like yours. And so I was thinking about that. And then at the same time, I was thinking, my goodness, if this is actually, uh, you know, an accurate representation of what the student is experiencing, they are going through a lot. <laughs> and so, they are. They and, are. and so, so you would expect that, you know, of course their grade would suffer because frankly, there's more important things going on in their life at that moment than a grade in a course. Absolutely. So it's very difficult to begin to, I mean, this is certainly not something that I want to engage in is sort of become a, a watchdog and or a policeman and try to sort out who is telling the truth and who is not. Um, so I, I I think that sh- that it's it is a, a a moral or ethical dilemma. How do you answer to each one of those? Mm-hmm. How do you um, not get caught up in 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 this sort of game of um, trying to appease their worries at the same time provide them with the security of a of a grade of an okay grade so there there's i would say you could you could spend pretty much uh, a, a good chunk of, of of every day pondering on all these critical questions that i think take us a little bit beyond um the 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 mon- mon- mundane aspect of oh it's just an email 
Yeah, and and of course, if you start uh, trying, you know, you you could easily see this as being a rabbit hole that you go down, where you start to try to determine the um, fidelity of the narrative in the email, uh, and then trying to understand whether there's, you know, whether it's factually correct, and and it becomes a rabbit hole for the teacher. I mean, it's not really, as you noted, it's not really your job to look at the details of these and and really it wouldn't be appropriate for you to start trying to track down you know whether a person's sister actually passed away or something like that i mean it it's almost like the student is wanting you to do that in some respects to lend credence to their story and that's a very dangerous place i think for some teachers to go especially given the nature of some of the emails that you received indeed indeed i mean there are college counselors and therapists and one of the motivations behind the chronology was because I teach in so many different places. Uh, if a college counselor reaches out to me about a specific student, I can do a very quick search and uh, find out how many times the student contacted me and the issues that were raised. And I, I, I what I find interesting in the book is that you can you can yourself, as a reader, um, spot these, say, three emails over the course over the course of a, um, a semester, and see how a student um, sort of evolves or how certain issues escalate. Um, it can sometimes start with something very banal. Uh, there's a student who's reaching out to me about uh, waiting for a repairman for his refrigerator who's not showing up and, and so is excusing himself. And it, it sounds so banal, but then the second email I receive um, begins to sign, show signs of depression. And then there's a third one that follows up and, um, in search of a, another okay grade. But clearly this student has real personal issues or problems um, that have absolutely nothing to do with uh, waiting for repairmen. And so to be able to trace that, um, I think, is, is, is important as a teacher, uh, but also shows how much uh, students sometimes have a need to, to reach out, and they don't know to whom and, and, and how. So, Philip, you've given much more thought to this than I think a lot of us have that just sort of transactionally either respond or perhaps even ignore these types of emails. What do you say to your students, like on the first day of class, when you talk about your course's attendance policy? I mean, has has putting this book together altered how you talk about this issue with your students in sort of a, a, a prophylactic way? I am, I think, more aware than ever before of how privileged I am to have students. And I tell them, um, I thank them for their for their for being present. Uh, so I've caught myself um, citing um, Simon Weil, for example, uh, who says that attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. And these words mean so much more to me than they ever did before. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. How do we perform attention? How do we perform generosity? And how does this affect us 
as human beings. Most of my students, myself included, are constantly distracted. The course for me is no, no longer simply about the history of art, but about the, the very activity of looking that can help us be more truthfully aware of the condition of being alive. That is sort of the overarching subject or task ahead for us. So it has, I think, reshaped the way I approach looking at art with students and appreciating their commitment to become effectively more generous. An email dated 8-24-2016, you actually wrote to your students and essentially in paraphrasing it, you apologize for canceling an upcoming class because of personal travel. Why did you include that email and what message do you think that it, you know, maybe sends to a student who might be reading your book? I just wanted to add at least one, you know, as a, <laughs> as a, as a friendly wink to my students to show them that I'm imperfect as well. Uh, there's, you know, that in my life too, there are instances when something other than classes is more important, but it should remain the exception. And in contrast, I have students who write to me all the time about wanting to come to class and then don't. So I wanted to create a space where I think they could, at least in this one email, see that this can happen to all of us. Hmm. It's just a matter of how we can turn this into a habit and abuse of it. It's wonderful that you can reach out to your students and cancel a class ahead of time rather than put them in the front of fait accompli and have people come from different places to show up in front of a, an empty classroom. So um, I'm human too. That was pretty much the message. Hmm. And very true for all of us. I, I know that I've sent that similar email out to students before. Uh, I think all of us have as teachers. Uh, you've talked a couple times in, in our discussion uh, today about some of what you think are the cultural implications of what it is that you learned from this. As I was reading your book, I, I was reminded of a recent presentation given by one of my colleagues, Austin Babrow, who talked about the density of the moments in which we live, where we're sort of uh, increasingly bombarded with information, have to make decisions about that, impl uh, that information, uh, and how our each moment becomes so much more dense um, that we experience because of um, the need to not only take in the information, but to evaluate it and, and act upon it in ways that are much more rapid um, and ever-present than ever before. So that was one of the takeaways that I got from reading all of these emails, that my goodness, as a teacher, uh, as a professor, uh, you're having to um, have very dense moments with your email inbox every morning as these emails come through. That was one of my takeaways. I, I surmise that you've developed some of your own hypotheses or takeaways that uh, talks about the cultural 
either implications or how this reifies certain aspects of our culture. What are some of your thoughts along that line? I have so many thoughts on this, but uh, <laughs> I would say that it has changed the rapport between the student and the teacher. I am not sure for the better. I think that um, what I witness is this sense, as I said many times, of entitlement, but it's looking at teachers more and more as mere service providers um, or at best tutors, private tutors. And this is reciprocated in the sense that students now, to me, appear more as customers. And that is a perversion of what I imagine and hope is still somewhat on our minds, um, is the rapport between pupil and teacher that harks all the way back to uh, Greek antiquity. We're not talking about the dialogues between Socrates and Plato. We're talking about what Simon Critchley defines when he's reading these, um, my emails, um, he writes, these compulsively readable messages are part of the pathetic and poignant pornography of our time. There is something pornographic going on. Um, and this is a philosopher looking critically at this mass of, of emails. And his words, I think, speak very loudly. Pathetic and poignant pornography of our time. How do we get out of this? I don't know. I'm not, not offering a kind of quick solution and say, you know, here's a, a few precepts we can all use and uh, begin to act on. Um, I think one of the things that I was very wary about was to say, let these emails speak for themselves. And perhaps sociologists, anthropologists, perhaps um, in the future, we'll be able to look back and see where we are now and how this triggered certain things that we were blind to. Uh, but I'm not offering any kind of uh, remedy because, frankly, uh, as you said, you, you know, it's very easy to, to fall into the rabbit hole um, and to get lost in the maze. Um, I mentioned the, the, the metaphor of, of an avalanche. One of the incentives behind the book was to, to be able to sort of look at this phenomenon from a safe distance and not get caught up underneath uh, this overwhelming um, um, phenomenon of, of, of these emails. 
You included an epilogue in your book from Dr. Shuki Cohen, who did uh, something of a, a textual analysis of the emails. A very fascinating piece to read in and of itself. You do learn a lot about not only how textual analysis can be revealing, but uh, just an interesting take provided by Dr. Cohen. What were the takeaways that you uh, gleaned from uh, that analysis? Well, I certainly wanted to have someone else to look at these. And I reached out to Dr. Shuki Cohen so that he could perform. He's, he's a scientist. He deals with data. Um, and what he did with these emails, he treated them as data and, and ran them through a couple of different psycholinguistic computer programs. Um, and it created a sort of composite student uh, who appeared to be rather self-absorbed, have commitment issues, and also appeared to be ill-equipped to reflect insightfully on his own thinking. So this, uh, this, this sort of was an interesting take that almost removed, I would say, all the um, emotional content and just looked at language, at structure, uh, at these emails as um, um, sort of purely, purely almost as just numbers. But what it did confirm in the end um, is that one should not treat students like statistics. This is important and I think difficult sometimes to to be reminded of, is that when we look at the fate of of higher education, uh, often we end up talking about numbers and statistics. And I'm looking at my students as human beings and they all seem to be sharing a desperate need for individual attention. So yes, there is, I would say, a very scientific approach. It has its own purpose, Um, but then we can draw each one of us our own conclusions as how we look, how do we want to look at our students. Um, I think there's a real danger when we just deal with pure data and statistics. I think it has its merits. Um, But what I wanted to put forth is real voices. And behind each one of them is a face, is a person. Philip, I really appreciate your time today. I found your book uh, very interesting uh, to read uh, in the sense that it really does open the door to what it is that students are experiencing in their lives and how they communicate it with their professor. And I also think it's revealing to hear you talk about it uh, during today's discussion uh, to hear how you as a professor react to it. So I really appreciate your time and uh, I'm very thankful that you were willing to come on Teaching Matters. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Can I add one more thing? Sure. The epigram of the book comes from Walt Whitman. We convince by our presence. So I want to thank you for your presence and for your interest in this, I think, very important teaching matter. 
Thank you very much. Mr. Notre Dame's book, Dear Professor, A Chronicle of Absences, is available from Punctum Books at punctumbooks.com. As somebody that uh, does training for teachers and also uh, tries to look at ways to enhance the communication between teachers and students, I think that uh, Mr. Notre Dame's book does a very good job of presenting some of the dilemmas that teachers will face as they are engaging in communication with students, especially through email, uh, which is, of course, more and more common. And as Mr. Mr. Notre Dame pointed out, it, it, it raises the ability to discuss some of the personal and ethical and moral issues that teachers will confront as they are contemplating the way that they will react to attendance issues and other sorts of um, uh, behavioral issues like that in class. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash listen. We are also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can connect with staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast in Facebook. Have a good day, and thank you for listening.